want you to think for a second, I don't know how many of you switched jobs or had different jobs in your life and you go into a new job and oftentimes there's a, a new job kind of orientation. I don't know if you've ever gone through that process. You come in and it's a new place and new systems and new ways and you have to go through kind of the way things work and the way it operates. Uh, before becoming a pastor, I actually was, uh, my degree was in architecture and I worked at three different architecture firms. And going into different ones, they all do things a little differently and you have to get kind of oriented to the way things operate. And I remember going through that at different times. Or, or even recently, uh, I've mentioned this in the last few weeks, I've been coaching my son's basketball team. And one of the things we did, like the very first week of practice was kind of like the orientation for them. Like, hey, this is what we're going to be about. This is the way we're going to operate. This is the way we're going to do things. Here's the expectations. Here's the consequences. If you don't meet the expectations, this is what it looks like. Um, or, or even here, maybe, maybe even a better example, starting next week, we're going to do new members class here at the church. We do that quarterly and it's three weeks where we meet, we'll meet downstairs in the office there. And what we do is we just kind of go over what does it look like to be a member of this church? What are the distinctives? What do we hold to? What do we see as most important? And it's a way for us to kind of all be on the same page and understand where we're going together. And so it's important at different times to have that kind of orientation to kind of orient ourselves to where we're going and the way it looks. And I say that because in some ways what Jesus is doing as he sits down, as he begins to teach in the sermon on the Mount is he's kind of giving an orientation to his followers. The crowds are coming and they're growing and there's more and more people and he's going to sit down and he's going to start to teach them and he's going to start to show them what it looks like to surrender to God in your life. What does it look like to truly follow God in all things? And he's going to start to preach and teach and show them this and start to talk about it. And it's an orientation of sorts of what Jesus is going to say is the the kingdom of heaven. He's going to use that term a lot. What does it mean to live in the kingdom and what does that look like? And so for the next eight weeks, we're going to spend our time in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. You read at the very beginning of Matthew chapter 8 that he came down off the mountain after teaching them. And so the context here is all of these things that he's saying to them. And probably the most famous sermon there is, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says a whole lot there. And really the way we're going to look at it, if you've been with us, we've been following Jesus' life chronologically, starting uh, at the very beginning of his ministry and working our way through. I've been saying this since the beginning of the year, but you can really divide Jesus's um, earthly ministry into three segments, each about a year. Uh, the first is what we call the, the year of preparation. That Jesus is a, a year of obscurity. People don't quite know who he is yet. He's just starting to preach and teach and be public in his ministry. And people are starting to come, but he's not quite the crowd yet. And then year two, it turns to what we call the year of popularity. And what we're doing right now and where we are is we're kind of turning the page to that year two. And so the way I think of it is almost the Sermon of the Mount is the bridge between year one to year two. Suddenly there's lots of people and there's great crowds and they're following Jesus and lots of intrigue in what he's doing. And so really we're going to spend this eight weeks in the Sermon on the Mount kind of as the bridge between year one to year two as we continue to move through Jesus's life chronologically. And so as we do, the message that we're going to see here is that Jesus is, is saying over and over, and actually you see it in context. If you, if you read just back in, in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or in verse 23 that I just read to you of chapter 4, it says uh, that he went through all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. 
And I think that's really kind of the banner statement as we look at the Sermon of the Mount of what Jesus is talking about, of what the kingdom of heaven looks like and what that means. And so today we're going to really start with the Sermon on the Mount. And, and really today is kind of the introduction, kind of laying the groundwork. And then the next seven weeks we'll really dive in and we'll look at the Beatitudes. Uh, that's that first blessed are those seg- segment there at the beginning. And then we'll look at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and how that expounds on each one of those as we go through it. But today's kind of big picture as we we make our way into it. And as we do, this is the way I want us to look at it. First, I want us to consider who he's talking to and kind of what's going on with them, the context of what's happening here. Secondly, what's the main idea that he's getting across in this sermon? And then lastly, how do we see it clearly? There's some things that we need to consider to really understand what Jesus is getting at. So how, uh, who's he talking to? What's the main idea? And then how do we see it clearly? So let's just start with the who of what's happening, the context of what's going on here. And if you go back in in chapter 4 and verse 25 there, that kind of summary statement says, And great crowds followed him from Galilee and and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So the whole area in which Jesus has been operating and going, about a 60-mile area kind of between Jerusalem and where he was originally from, up by Nazareth, and that whole area where he's going People are coming from all over now and great crowds are following and starting to assemble. And you get to verse one of chapter five and it says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down and his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them. Right. And so the context there is great crowds coming and Jesus sits down on the mountain and he begins to teach them. But there's a couple things that I want you to consider. The first, I've said this a bunch throughout this series, if you've been with us, but it's important. I'll be, I'll be brief here, but it's important background. One of the things that keeps coming up is people are starting to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. There's some that are saying, yes, he's definitely the Messiah. There's some that are like, maybe he is, maybe he isn't, but they're at least intrigued by the thought. But what we need to know context-wise is there's a messianic expectation that the people had. And it doesn't completely line up to what Jesus is saying about what he has come to do. And so there's always some kind of missing. They're thinking it's one thing and Jesus is saying another thing. But it's important for us to understand that because context is important. The way that they would be hearing what he's saying. And so their expectation is the Messiah is going to come and he's going to overthrow the government. And he's going to be a great charismatic leader that's going to say, follow me and we're going to usher in this kingdom and it's going to come. And, and you could understand why people were excited about this, right? Remember, Jesus is operating in the Middle East, right there in the land where Israel is and where they were as a nation. But at this time, they are an oppressed people under the Roman government. The Romans have come in and taken control and they're under their kind of heavy oppression. And so when you think about what Jesus says, when he starts to talk about kingdom, a lot of people are going to hear it that way. They're like, yes. We need a new king. We need to overthrow this government. We need to get rid of these things. And they're going to start to think and operate that way. And a lot of times that's where the the miscommunication comes. Because Jesus is talking about something far greater than just a certain place at a certain time in history. He's talking about uh, sin and death and the things that uh, undergird all of this. And they're thinking in temporal terms over overthrowing a government. And so it's important for us just to remember that because the culture you live in and the way that you operate and the way you see is going to color the way that you hear what's coming at you, right? The, the same is true for us today. 
There's things that we miss in the Bible or we maybe misinterpret because of the culture we live in. And then we try to read it back into the Bible and we miss sometimes. And so that's important for us to at least consider. The second thing about the context, though, is it says that his disciples came and they sat at his feet. But there's great crowds that are there. And I want you just to think about as the disciples come, there's there's a growing mix of people. We've seen in the first year, Jesus has called different people to himself. What we think of the 12 disciples, those that are coming, he's starting to kind of cultivate this inner group. But then there's more people that are his disciples that are following. And he has a whole group of people that are following him. Yes, all the way through this. And we see that. But then there's also great crowds coming everywhere he goes. And that's growing and it's getting bigger and bigger. And so when Jesus sits down to teach, he sits down to teach his disciples But it's not just his disciples. If you think of he sits down with 12 or however many or 70 or 100 or how many disciples he has that are really following him. But it's them plus a great crowd of people. And in that great crowd of people, there's going to be a great mix of their backgrounds and why they're there and why they're coming. And so people, some people are there because they're very politically minded and they're thinking, man, he's going to overthrow the government and this is going to be great. Some people are there because it's like, maybe he'll do a miracle and we'll get to see it. Some people maybe show up and they go, maybe I will receive a miracle. Maybe he'll be able to heal me. Maybe I will benefit from this. And then there's some that I think are thinking deeper than that in different ways. But the the point here is the context of who he's speaking to is a mix. It's a great mix of a whole bunch of different people. But what's happening is Jesus is discipling them. He's teaching them what it means to follow him, what it means to surrender to God what that looks like. And so if you've been around Church of the Apostles any time, we say this all the time, but our mission as a church is to make disciples that make disciples. That's the mission that Jesus gave us. And I often define that as being a disciple of Jesus is growing in obedience to Jesus in every area of your life. And we're called to help one another grow in that pursuit of discipleship. And so as we seek to be disciples of Jesus, we should look to Jesus on how he makes disciples. And so here, there's an important point that I just want to point out to you about what Jesus is doing. He sits down and he's teaching his disciples, but there's a whole lot of other people there from all different walks of life and all different places and all different kind of points of entry of trying to understand who he is. And so when we gather on a Sunday morning, we gather here to worship God. Primarily what we do on a Sunday morning is for believers, We gather as a family of faith and we sing praises and we hear from God's word and we pray and we take communion together. But the Bible also tells us that there should be an expectation that there's people joining in even here on a Sunday morning that don't yet know Jesus. And the reason we do that is because Jesus, that's the way Jesus made disciples. And that should be our expectation. And so I would say to you here today, if you're here today and you go, well, I'm not exactly sure where I am and the way I think about who Jesus is, I would just say to you, you're welcome. I'm so glad you're here. And your questions are welcome. You're welcome to come in and go, well, I don't know exactly how this works. And I'm not sure what the Bible says about that. And I'm not sure I fully believe that. And I'd say, well, great. If we're seeking to follow Jesus in the way that Jesus made disciples, that's what he was always doing. There was always a mixed crowd. And he's always preaching and teaching and he's teaching his disciples as he goes, but he's also inviting anyone else that would come to hear. And so I just want to make sure that we see that, that we're reminded of that truth, that that should always be true of us as followers of Jesus. And so that's the context here. Now I want us to think about what he is uh, talking about. What's the main idea of what he's saying? 
And you get an idea just in verse 17 when it says he's preaching and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or you get in verse 23 of chapter 4 that he was going out and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Or even as you start to actually read through the Sermon on the Mount. If you read closely, you'll see seven different times he talks about the kingdom. Over and over, the kingdom of heaven. It's the very first line of his sermon as he opens his mouth and begins to teach. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And if we start to think about, well, what is this sermon about and what is the main idea and what is it pointing to? The idea here is the the overarching theme is talking about the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is going to talk about that a lot throughout his ministry, but in particular in this sermon. And so the question then becomes, well, what does that mean? What does it mean when he says the kingdom of heaven? In the context, when you start to read through and you start to look at it, part of it is this, this hunger and thirsting for righteousness, wanting to see all things set right. Wanting to see things as they were originally created and meant to be. And you can understand that from a people that are coming to hear Jesus speak, that are under the heavy oppression of a foreign government that's really difficult. And of course they want to hear that things are going to be set right. And that's part of the way they're hearing what he says. But what Jesus is pointing them back to over and over is all the problems that we see in the world are not just the surface problems, but there's something underneath it. And he's going to point back to the heart issue, the sin underneath the sin that's causing all the problems. And he's going to keep pointing back to that. And so when we start to think about what the kingdom of heaven is and what it is that Jesus is talking about, the kingdom of heaven is when God is ruling and reigning in all things. In all things, in everything, the rule and reign of God becomes visible in every way. And that's what he's beginning to talk about. And you start to see this in the way he preaches and teaches and where he goes and how that works, right? And so oftentimes there's a disconnect, though, because Jesus is talking about the heart issue that's holding these things up, that's underneath the problems that we see. But oftentimes we're too focused on just the problem itself to think about the heart condition underneath. You see it all over in our culture today. Our culture is not all that different from theirs. The the people that Jesus is speaking to are kind of like the people that we have today. So often today, uh, we've made everything into kind of two-party system. Everything's become very binary in our culture today. You're either on this team or you're on that team. And if you're on this team, then everything that that team says is wrong and they're the problem. And things get kind of dumbed down like that today. You see it all over the place. Well, do you believe X? Well, that means that you're not this. Now, that's not true. There's actually a lot more gradations in that. But we get kind of pumped from uh, the media and all sorts of things that it's really one or the other. But what ends up happening is we get sucked into that type of thinking and we start to operate that way. And we say the answer is... We need to get this person elected and get that person out and they'll make good laws and we'll get rid of them and then things will be okay. But the problem is it's not that simple. It doesn't work like that. That's not actually true. But we've embraced that idea so often and what comes out of that is the idea that we can legislate change. That we can change people at a core level by making them do certain things or not allowing them to do certain things. And in fact, I think that's the way a lot of people were operating when Jesus is speaking in these things. They're going, if we could just get rid of the Roman government, if we could just push them out and we could get a new king, 
Right? If the Messiah comes and he's our king and he sets things up and we get rid of them, we'll legislate these things and they'll be better. And the problem is what Jesus is going to say over and over to that idea, right? Their idea is that Jesus is going to come and liberate by force. Follow me and let's go. But what Jesus is going to say over and over, he's going to continue to reframe the whole thing that he says, this doesn't come by force, but it comes by heart change. It comes by surrendering to God. It comes by entering into the kingdom of God, by surrendering to him and living in light of that and pointing to who he is. And then God changes hearts. And that's hard for people to hear, particularly when you're under the heavy hand of oppression. Sometimes they don't want to hear that. In fact, a lot of people so don't want to hear it that it's going to lead to them wanting to kill Jesus. But he's going to say this over and over and he's going to continue to show us that the outward issues that we see are actually uh, the fruit of a much deeper problem that's a heart issue. And so you see this throughout the Sermon on the Mount. You actually see it in the very first line. If you look closely, the very first thing he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The people that are thinking you're going to be the conquering king that leads us to overthrow government. And he goes, this is the way my kingdom works. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Blessed are the people that are depressed and upset and frustrated all the time. No, not exactly. Poor in spirit has to do with understanding your need. I would summarize it this way. I think this is a pretty good way to say it. Uh, Isaiah chapter 66. God says that he's sitting on his glorious throne, that he doesn't need anything from man, that he's the one that's ruling and reigning over all things. And then he says, but this is to the one to whom I look. The one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. It's a pretty good definition of what poor in spirit means. That we surrender our ambitions and what we think we can do and we lay them down at God's feet and say, I'm going to trust you and what you tell me. I'm going to tremble at your word. I'm going to take seriously what you tell me about how you say the world works. And I'm going to trust you in that. And that's what Jesus is saying here. That there's this kingdom that he's coming to bring and the way in which you enter into his kingdom and you see the fullness of it, the rule and reign of God is that you surrender to him. You make it all about him and trusting him. And so that's really what he's talking about. That's kind of the big idea of the whole of the sermon that he's going to talk about. How does it surrender to him the kingdom of heaven and how that comes? Now, to understand that, there's a lot of things. And by the way, that, that's a very big oversimplification. There's a lot of things that we're going to look at as we work our way through the sermon. But that's the kind of overarching theme of the Sermon on the Mount. But there's some important things that we need to think about to really understand what he's saying. And one of those today I just want us to think about is kind of the last point today that we're going to think about in this introduction is the importance of seeing what is now and what is still future or, or what we sometimes say what is already and what is not yet. Right. When we think about the rule and reign of God in all things. And so if you look closely, what he says at the very beginning, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? Present tense. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven right now. Or, or if you go back to what he was saying in chapter four, for repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now it's, it's here. 
It's at hand and you can see it. And he talks about ways in which it's visible and different things that are. And so part of it is happening right here and now as Jesus teaches and speaks. Part of it has come and is already here in his life, death and resurrection. We'll talk about that in a second. But part of it is now. You even see that in verse 10. Blessed are those who persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But then if you look closely, verse 4 through 9, he's all talking about future. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And on it goes. And each one, he's pointing ahead. And he's telling you, there's promises that come with this, and they will come in full. And so sometimes theologians will say it this way. When we start to talk about the ministry of Jesus and where we are right now in the church age with Jesus having come and he's going to come again, but we live in that, that we live in the tension of the already and not yet. That part of it has already come and it's already come in fullness and God's kingdom is here amongst us and it's starting to grow and to to be revealed in a whole lot of ways, but the fullness of it is not yet. And so I want us just to think about that for a second. And when we do, there's several layers to this. And I've been saying this as we go through the Gospels. You have the original audience that Jesus was speaking to. Right? They're in the middle of the story, but we're reading the story knowing the whole of the story. Right? When we read the Gospels, what tells us, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about the life of Jesus, most of us here have, have read through and you know how it ends. With Jesus' life and death and glorious resurrection... Those people sitting on that mountainside didn't have that. They're in the story, right? And so they're going to hear the already, not yet, in a little different way than we would. Does that make sense? They're not going to see the fullness that we see. But I want us to think about that because they did see part of it because Jesus is speaking in present tense to them at that moment when he says some of these things have already come and are happening. Right? So like in, in verse 23, it says he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so Jesus is saying that. He says, repent, the kingdom is at hand, or it's come near, or you've seen it. And I want you to think about that for a second. As Jesus walks into towns and he teaches and preaches and he heals all afflictions, people are starting to see for just a moment what the rule and reign of God looks like in fullness. Oftentimes we think of miracles as like uh, out of the ordinary, Right. But it, it's something that that happens when we say it's miraculous, that it's not what in the way we think of things as they should be or as they are, but something that's happened out of the ordinary. But the truth of Jesus's miracles is he's restoring things to where they were originally created to be. He's setting them right. And in those moments when he's healing all afflictions and all diseases, people are seeing what the world looks like freed from the effects of sin. It's already. And he says it's here and it's now and you're seeing it. And he's showing them what that looks like. Now, they don't understand the fullness that the way in which he's going to bring that in full over the face of the earth and all things is that that is dependent on him defeating sin and death once and for all through his death and resurrection. And they don't quite have the framework to hold that because they think of the Messiah as a conquering king that's going to set up his government and his kingdom right now. But Jesus is always working on a deeper level. And you can see why there's this struggle throughout his ministry and what he's talking about. Because oftentimes they're missing it because they're stuck in this paradigm of an earthly kingdom. 
They're stuck fixated on the fruit uh, of the problem versus the problem itself, which is sin and our rebellion against God. And so you're always having this tension that's there in everything that Jesus does. But as he goes, and even though they haven't seen the fullness yet, and even though at this point he hasn't yet laid his life down, they're still seeing bits and pieces of it. Right? They're still seeing some of the already in what he's doing. And so it's this beautiful picture as Jesus moves from town to town and he shows them what this looks like. It's like he's creating a, a trailer for what the fullness of the kingdom will look like. You know what I mean when I say a trailer? Like a movie trailer. Right? You ever go to the movies and you sit there and they show, and coming soon, this, this, and this? Trailers are great. <laughs> They're almost always better than the movie itself, right? They take all the best parts and they cram it into two minutes. And it's funny and there's action and there's romance and there's all this stuff. And if it's a really good trailer, you get to the end and what do you do? You go, we're going to see that. I want to go see that movie. That's awesome. And part of what Jesus is doing when he says the kingdom is at hand and he's showing them and he's healing all these things, he's showing what it's going to look like when he returns. But the key to understanding the already and the fullness of what he's doing, the already and the not yet, that part that's there, the only way that that holds together is in the cross of Jesus. Now, they don't fully see that. And I want you to understand whenever we read the Bible... We're going to read through the Sermon of the Mount together and we know the full of the story of what Jesus has done. We see the fullness of that. They don't. And so there's really two kind of contexts that are happening there. But to really understand the Sermon of the Mount and the fullness of it, you have to see the whole of the story and what we know in the already in terms of us. Not, not the people there, but in us. And so what's the already in terms of us is that Jesus has come and he's come to deal with sin And he's come to deal with the evil in the world. And the way in which he does it is he comes and he lives the life that we haven't lived. And he dies the death that we deserve. And he goes to the cross and he willingly lays his life down. And he takes all the sin of the world of all those that would put their faith in him. And he brings it to nothing. And he does that by bearing the wrath of God. The holy righteous anger against all the sin of the world. And Jesus takes it upon himself and he brings it to nothing and he ends it. So we celebrated just a couple weeks ago at Easter on Good Friday, Jesus goes to the cross and he bears the sin of the world and he brings it to nothing. And then on Easter Sunday, he's raised again and he says sin has been defeated and death is defeated. And the things, the roots at the very bottom that we see being manifested in our world and the evil has been cut off. It's been killed. It's been brought to nothing. Now, we still see it in our world today because there's still Uh, the freedom that God gives us in this moment. We can still make real choices with real consequences, but he is coming again to bring the fullness of that where we will see his rule and reign in everything. But I want you to think about the already. He's already defeated sin and death in what he's done. I've used this analogy before, but it helps me to think about it. In the garden, uh, Satan presents himself to Adam and Eve as a snake, right? And he tempts them and they decide to ignore God and the world he created. Sin enters the world and all the problems that come with it. But when God sees what happens, he says, I will send one who's going to crush the serpent. He's talking about Jesus. He's the one who crushes evil and death and sin and he brings it all to nothing. And so we live at a time right now where the serpent's head has been crushed. Satan's been defeated. 
Jesus has already won. And so I use the analogy I remember as a kid, my grandfather chopping off the head of a snake in my yard. I was a little boy, but I still vividly remember it was a copperhead. And he came over to kill it, poison a snake. You don't want it around kids. And he cut the head off. And you know what happens when you cut the head of snake off? It keeps biting. It flops around and it bites and the body goes crazy and it flops all over. And you're like, whoa, it's done. There's no putting the head back on. He's finished. But for a minute, it's still like that. That's the times we live in now, the already and not yet. The head's been cut off. Satan has been defeated. Jesus has won. And we're waiting for his glorious return when the fullness of everything will be brought under subjection to him. And we will see it in every way. But the snake's head's still trying to get any last person he can at the moment. And so we live in light of the already and the not yet. And so this sermon that Jesus is going to talk about, the Sermon on the Mount, comes back to this idea that it's already, it's here, because Jesus is here and he's doing for what uh, doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. And we put our trust in him. And as we do, he begins to remake us in his image. Right? That's what happens when you become a believer. Right? What happens when you become a believer is the first line of the sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you recognize you can't do it. That only Jesus can do it for you. Say so that's what saving faith is. I say this all the time. Saving faith is transferring your trust from yourself and what you can do to Jesus and what he's done. And as you transfer your trust to Jesus, yours is the kingdom of heaven. And it's not because you're perfect. It's not because you're such a good person. It's because of what Jesus has done. And so this is the way you have to read the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is not a whole bunch of ethical things that if you do these and you do them pretty well, then you get to come into the kingdom. It's for people who have surrendered themselves to Jesus and he comes into your life and he begins to remake you. And this is what it looks like to live your life in complete dependence on him. Do you see the difference? And it's so important that we see that as we come to the Sermon on the Mount. The already and not yet that Jesus has already done for us. And we're seeking to trust him as these things are being played out in our life through the power of the spirit. Little by little, he's, he's making us into his image that we're beginning to live these things out to give glory to him. And he says, when you do, you're blessed when you have these things. When you trust me in everything, you will be blessed. And you will see the fullness of what I'm doing. And so we have to understand the already and not yet. But the second part of that is there is a part that's not yet, right? We still see evil in our world. We still see struggles all around us. We go, yes, Jesus is one, but there's still hard things. And so I would remind you that second part of this as we work our way through it is there is this not yet that is wonderful. And these promises that he's saying to us, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And in each one of these things, he's telling us what it looks like to live, giving our lives to God, trusting him in all things. And he says, this is what's coming. Trust me, this is what's coming. And these things will come in fullness. And some of them have already come in part. Some of them do fall in that already Category, And we'll talk about that as we work our way through each one of those. 
but some of it is not yet. I know a lot of you. I know a lot of you in the way that you pray and you hunger and thirst for righteousness in our world. And you look around and you go, man, it's a mess. And there's so many things. I often talk to people who are older than I am. And they'll say to me, well, you don't understand what it used to be like. And it's just gotten so worse. And I see things in my life. And what, but, but, but what's at the heart of it? Is there hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Man, I want things to be set right. And so hear Jesus' words. He says, blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. You will be satisfied. You're going to see the fullness of God's rule and reign coming. And these not yet pieces come when Jesus returns in his second coming and he sets all things right. And so what I want us to think about this morning is just we end today and then as we, we walk into this sermon together and spend time in it is how do we live in the already in the not yet? And the answer is if we live in the already and we understand what Jesus has done for us, we can face the things that are not yet because we have the assuredness that they are coming. Because that's what he says here. He's telling us the things that are already and that we can see that he's doing and he has done for us, but that he's going to bring it to the fullness of it. And so what do we do and how do we live in light of that? And I think of it like this. We follow Jesus' lead and we live in light of the already that Jesus has already come and done for us what we could never do for ourselves. We are righteous in his sight, even though the fullness of that has not dawned completely in our lives as we still struggle against our flesh. But it is coming. We do have the spirit indwelling us and walking with us and bringing us from one degree of glory to another as the kingdom is dawning in our lives. So what do we do? We do like Jesus, which create trailers for the kingdom. We seek to live in a way that shows the fullness of what is coming because of what Jesus has done. We seek to love one another in the way Jesus loved us. We seek to care for the people around us in the ways that Jesus cared for us. We seek to alleviate the suffering that's in front of us, pointing people to this is coming and it's going to come in fullness and it's all because of what Jesus has done. And we get to live in light of that today. And so as we make our way through the Sermon of the Mount, I want to just remind you to hold that tension all the way through it. The already and the not yet. How do we live seeking to operate and show what the not yet that's coming looks like while clinging to the already and what Jesus has done for us? That we wouldn't make this this insurmountable thing that we could never fully do because none of us, if you read the Sermon on the Mount that way, it will crush you. If you read it as like, this is what I have to do to be accepted into God's kingdom, you'll never make it. But if you read it the way Jesus intended it, this is what I've done and this is who I am and this is what it looks like to live fully trusting me and he's done it for you and we get to live out of it. There's great joy in following him in this. So let that be our prayer as we make our way through the Sermon on the Mount. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you that you've done for us what we could never do for ourselves. We thank you though that you call us into deeper relationship with you. And that you want to see us being remade into your image and living in holiness and trusting you more fully and showing the world what you're like. And so would you show us the ways in which you intend to do that in our lives? Help us to grow closer to you and to help one another to grow closer to you. We pray that we would seek 
to glorify you in everything, that we would seek to show our world what is coming. And that it would only be through your power and your grace that we could ever do any of this. And so we ask that you continue to conform us to your image for your glory and our good. And we pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.